HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler. And I'm Dylan Hoyer. And today we are talking to Jamie Ager, the owner of North Carolina's Hickory Nut Gap Meats, and Asher Wright, the company's farm director. And this episode is made possible thanks to the support of Hickory Nut Gap. And to both of you guys and the whole Hickory Nut Gap team, I want to say a huge thank you for supporting our coverage of Charleston Wine and Food. As um, if you're listening right now, hopefully you've tuned into the 24 or so episodes of coverage that we brought back from the festival. So welcome, Jamie and Asher. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be with you guys. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad that we're able to do these remote recordings now. Can you, Jamie, tell us a little bit about where you are right now? So we're in Fairview, North Carolina, which is about 20 minutes outside of Asheville. And, and at Hickory Nut Gap, uh, I'm a fourth generation farmer here. My family's been here for over 100 years uh, here in, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Amazing. And what's it like in North Carolina at this moment? Today is March 16th. So the grass is just starting to get greened up. We're getting a big rain today, which should help get the grass really cranking. Next week, looks like we'll be in the 60s. So we're kind of in the right in between, almost to the day between winter and spring, I would say. When you say, Asher? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Looks like we are going to be able to start grazing our animals soon. And this is a very timely rain. So thankful for it. Amazing. 
Asher, as a farm director, can you tell us a, a, a little bit of an overview of what the Hickory Nut Gap meets operation looks like? Yeah. So we have around um, 90 partner farmers here in the Southeast that raise animals to the protocols that we've developed. And the protocols we've developed have been in partnership with the farmers. So it's a, it's a process of working together. But those are the high welfare, regenerative agriculture protocols that you know, our consumers expect and, and what we believe will not only help the land, but animal welfare, animal health, consumer health, all those pieces. So that's what's tied up in the protocols. And my role is to work with those farmers here in the Southeast and help help make sure that logistics are lined up, you know, visiting farms each year to keep the relationships going, uh, editing and developing the protocols as needed, um, things like that. And then another piece that we're working on is uh, providing ecological monitoring services for our partner farmers here. So we we've chosen to use the Savory Institute's ecological outcome verified methodology, which is called EOV for short. And we're able to, with that, measure the ecosystem function and health, as well as soil health of all the partner farmers and provide the information that we gather back to each of them uh, in a report form so that it can better inform their management decisions. It's a part of the feedback loop of being a good manager. And so we're excited to be rolling that project out right now. And the supply chain really looks like we have a lot of farmers in North Carolina, of course, but we have Southern Virginia. We've got a couple in Ohio. We've got a few in, in West Virginia. We've got a few in Tennessee. We have a pretty large pork supply chain in Kentucky. And then we, we have a couple farmers in Georgia and South Carolina. So we kind of span these this Southeast region. And it's been a real key to our success, I believe, with making sure that the cattle have good forage in front of them throughout the entire year. And our unique climate allows us to do that. And it also allows us to be able to keep pigs out on pasture year round with minimal animal welfare concerns because the weather is not too, not too inclement or terrible down here. That's great. So, I mean, I think we definitely want to dive into all those specific relationships in a little bit, but starting with the big picture in terms of what sets Hickory Nut Gap apart you say that changing the future of agriculture and food is not for the faint of heart. So for people who are less familiar with you, how are you working to change agriculture and what does that work entail? Yeah, so I can I can take that one. Um, Amy and I came back from college in 2000, um, sort of young and idealistic about selling local meat into local markets doing grass-fed beef. We'd uh, visited with Joel Salatin, who's a very inspirational farmer up in Virginia, when I was in college, and just had some some notions about direct marketing and, and got uh, very fortunate in the way that we were, the family farm that we came back to um, was a dairy. When I was a little boy, we'd sold that, and the farm didn't have a, a lot of direction whenever I graduated from college. So my my family was basically like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and uh, and we started selling, you know, pastured poultry and grass-fed beef into local, into Asheville, and, and pretty quickly realized that it was a great place to be doing business because we had access to all these chefs and, and all these uh, 
customers who are interested in higher quality food. And, and about four or five years into that, realized that we really had an opportunity to, to think about food and agriculture in a different way than just kind of the commodity system that had, had been in place for the past hundred years. And, you know, for the past hundred years, in a broad sense, agriculture has been locked into a paradigm where consumers made the determination that they were pretty much just focused on cheap food and, and the low, the price was the main driver for decision-making. And as the health food industry matured and, and we at Hickory Nut Gap started selling into more health conscious consumers, you know, really thinking through how we can leverage those relationships with our customers in a way that could create a better system for agriculture and food and, and what we now call kind of conscious capitalism or stakeholder engagement um, business beliefs, where we really want to maximize our whole supply chain and partnerships with from soil health to animal health to people health to human health and really build a brand with intentionality regarding all those stakeholders so that we don't just create cheap food, but we create a transparent, high quality uh, product that that respects every single piece of the supply chain along the way. So that's really kind of in a nutshell what we do and and really what we call that is we create it's it's possible to do it right so we create the possible burger. Awesome. And is has the farm always employed regenerative agriculture or is that a newer addition to what y'all are doing? So regenerative agriculture is kind of a new phrase and I think it's ultimately a helpful phrase because it does help describe kind of the more complex reality of the food system and and that it, it different regions uh, require different things for 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 communicating to customers about the type of agriculture that we're in so for the past 20 years you know Amy and I both got degrees in sustainable ag and so we've been you know focused on most of those practices for a long time um, recently the word regenerative has come around and and I think as label claims, in agriculture uh, have become more and more normal. There is some eye rolling about which vocabulary word is correct. And regenerative is certainly the newest iteration of it. If, you know, common practices like cover cropping, rotational grazing, all these practices that have been around for a while, but wrapping them up into a, a word like regenerative does seem helpful in that it really focuses on soil health and, and the fact that we want to kind of make the the agriculture system better. We don't just want to use sustainable practices that sustain a, a not ideal system. So, you know, regenerative, I think, does a good job of communicating that. And then one thing I'll add here and then let Asher handle the rest of that is um, that, you know, label claims are always challenging to use for food products because agriculture is so much more complicated than can be described in one word, whether that's organic or grass-fed or antibiotic-free or any of these claims we all talk about. Um, and so what we try to do as a brand is really embrace that complexity and tell the deeper story. And one more question on the label, since you brought that up. I mean, a lot of people, as the term regenerative agriculture becomes more familiar, becomes more popular, People are looking at it as this like silver bullet of sorts, I think, with regards to climate change and, you know, larger corporations are getting behind the practice as well. I mean, what are your thoughts on whether 
all regenerative farms are created equal? Are people, you know, looking at this with, you know, maybe more hope than should be placed in it? Or, you know, how much potential do you think this has to sort of help us? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think there is there there is reason for optimism in in a major way for the regenerative space because of these practices and the ability to sequester carbon and put it back in the soils, and you know the science is is confirming that at this point, you know it is a little bit of the wild west on labeling and claims and verifying how much carbon you have in it, and that's why you know Asher and the and the team here are focused on you know this EOV process which can help verify how much, you know, what our activities are actually doing on the ground. Um, so I guess I'll say it's, it's early still to know the outcomes, but I'd say the early information that we have is really exciting. What do you think, Ash? You know, I think that's interesting. And, and where regenerative gives me hope is there's an intentionality around improving the landscape. And I think the companies that are also focusing on the social components um, as well, rural livelihoods, farmer pay price, quality of life. That's also tied into regenerative. And what I'm getting at is that it's outcomes based and it touches on the delineation or the difference between verification and certification. And the certification world was really tied, is really tied to checking boxes on production practices and showing auditors or inspectors records that those certain practices were performed at X date. Verification is different in that you're verifying the outcomes that you say you're doing. Yes, my production practice is building soil. Here, the soil sample is demonstrating that. Look, these grazing practices are increasing biodiversity. Look at the biodiversity score in the ecological health index piece of the monitoring process. So that's really where I think Regen is going to has a lot of potential um, is verifying the outcomes that we're saying we're generating through certain management practices on the landscape. And so that's where I'm excited about it. And as to like what we verify, that's I think where Jamie's touching on the Wild West. Do we just look at soil carbon? Do we look at ecosystem function? Do we play in the social components around the rural communities? And I think this is what verification brands like Rodale's Regenerative Organic or a Greener Worlds approach or EOV, this is where everybody's still trying to think a little bit about what do we include here? And so that, you know, those are some of my thoughts on it, but I'm optimistic I think it's important for brands with integrity that are trying to do the right job and, you know, what's right. I'm, I'm not here to say what's right, but I think we all have a general gut feeling on what it means to cut corners. What regenerative is not is a little easier to, to define than what regenerative is. And so I think that we have a lot of potential here to do the right thing. And it's part of the reason we're involved with this is, you know, not selfishly, but we just, we want to be a part of steering it in a good direction and using the word and actually having that word mean something because I think other large companies have demonstrated that they can water these things down over, you know, greenwash things. And I, I, you know, my opinion, that's a concern just speaking for myself. And so I want to get behind this word and have it actually mean something. And I know there are a lot of other companies, brands, farms out there that want to do the same. So 
I'm feeling good about it. And take us through what it looks like. What does regenerative agriculture mean to you in practice day to day as the farm director? You know, what work is behind this? You know, Jamie touched on some of the production practices. It's it's tied to thinking holistically about your farm and acknowledging that there are a bunch of holes, W-H-O-L-E-S, that are interacting with each other, but that have their own complexity within. You've got your grazing herd, you've got your pasture, you've got your water systems, you have all the farm workers that that work there. It's kind of acknowledging and understanding the complexity of the landscape and that there's a lot of self-organizing systems that are operating. And then thinking about what are the practices that are going to allow these to flourish and what are the practices that we can do that will drive improvement on landscapes that we can agree are, have been degraded since kind of the beginning of agroforestry practices in colonial America. And so things that we're looking at are planned grazing. Some folks call it management intensive grazing or adaptive grazing. And these are a little bit different than rotational in that they're just more, there's more intention around looking at the recovery times for the pastures making sure that the plants have all the time they need to put energy into the roots. Perennial plants put about half their growth below ground. And if you continually return to the pasture too early and graze the, the leaves, the leaves, excuse me, you can really impact your root reserves. And so that's one, one technique that we're really thinking about is planned rotational grazing, where we have a plan, we see the pasture, we look at this pasture can support animals for this many days, and we want to make sure that it, it has a break for 45 days at least, let's say, before we graze it again. Um, that's really going to increase pasture diversity, can help build soil, it can eliminate burning off of carbon because you do have the soil covered, the temperature of the ground's cooler, moisture is held in, those types of things. This also drives water infiltration rate, and your, your farm has the ability to store more water. That's less runoff. Asher, I, I want to jump back to something you said. So, um, you know, our, our audience may or may not be familiar with cover cropping and, and crop rotation and farming, but you said something about perennial plants um, and having, well, two things about that. So one... Um, what does it mean to be growing perennials in pasture spaces? And is that different from traditional domesticated animal farm agriculture? Um, and then let's talk about what it means to have so much root mass under the ground. You said half the plant is under the ground. Traditional cow-calf and cattle operations all around the United States to this day are grazing perennial pastures. It's very common. Um, I think wh where we differentiate slightly from or greatly from some other more conventional practices, if you will, is that at some point the calf leave that the calf leaves the farm and finishes in a feedlot, which has very little ecosystem services going on. It's generally dirt and there's a bunker um, that they eat mostly annuals out of, you know, corn, soybean meal wheat, things like that, but also a lot of byproduct feeds. Cattle are responsible for eating a lot of byproducts, sugar beet pulp, cottonseed hulls, soy hulls, um, stuff like that as a part of their mixed ration. So that is a lot of annual agriculture and annual agriculture, you know, meaning the 
in one year that crop grows, it puts out a seed head, it dies, and it doesn't come back unless you plant the seed or the seed falls to the ground. That's annuals, right? For us, we're finishing our animals. Generally speaking, we do graze annuals in our supply chain, and it is a valuable part of making good grass-fed beef is grazing annual grasses during the summer and during the winter. Um, We do do that, but the majority of the grazing and the cow-calf operations are done on perennial pastures, and they come back every year. And when they're properly managed, they can provide really good ground cover. And they can protect the soil and hold moisture and, and, and add litter, which feeds your soil microbes. And then they continue to put roots below ground. And those roots really help build the soil. When you graze the shoots or the leaves of the pasture, the plant will slough or basically say, I no longer need you part of my roots. And it will not supply them with nutrients. And those roots then decay in the soil and feed microbes and they create pore space for water to infiltrate. And by feeding microbes and that and, and the process that happens of breaking down that carbon, it, it that's how we get carbon stored in the soil as soil organic matter and ultimately soil organic carbon. And that soil organic carbon is kind of the house that all of the microbes live in. And the bigger house you have, the more microbes you have, and the microbes are holding nutrients for the plants within their own cells, their own tissue. And so it's a really key piece to nutrient cycling or what's also called the mineral cycle and the ability for us to not need synthetic inputs. It's a cycle, you know, nature is sufficient in itself. You don't need to fertilize a forest. It just keeps doing great. That's part of the strategy of regenerative agriculture is mimicking nature mm-hmm. and cycling nutrients and not having and minimizing or fully excluding, if possible, synthetic inputs. And that's a big piece of it. And pasture management and perennials, like we discussed, they're all tied to that cycle. Since we're talking about what the animals are eating, let's talk about flavor. What is the effect of your farming practices have on the flavor of the meats? What does that mean to your operation, to all of your farmers, to your customers? You want to take this, Jamie? You go ahead, Asher. Okay. You know, I think for years, folks thought that grass-fed beef was not very tasty, that it was gamey, it was grassy flavored, might taste like a little bit of iron, stuff like that. And part of that was just an industry trying to figure out how to do it. Um, but fast forward 20, 30 years to where we are today. And, you know, the, the work of the farmers that we work with is other, as well as other farmers around the United States and the world as, and research like Dr. Susan Duckett's work at Clemson has done a lot of work on, on this and how to make a good grass fed beef product. And so the first thing is that I think you still do taste a little bit of that kind of earthy, slightly gamey flavor. To me, the flavor is more complex. Um, and part of that is due to the fact that the animals are grazing diverse pastures and plant diversity means there's a lot of different phytonutrients or plant nutrients that are within each plant because every plant has a different metabolism. Certain plants take up different nutrients more than others. 
those plants are act, those nutrients are in the tissue of the plant when the animal eats it. And, you know, the kind of, you are what you eat. A lot of those compounds are absorbed within, especially the fat of the meat. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fat soluble vitamins and other nutrients that get stored in the fat of the meat. And that comes through. I think where grass fed beef has not done a great job is animals that are too old when they're harvested or there hasn't been a focus on putting them on good pasture. For example, here we have a lot of tall fescue. If you just graze a beef animal on tall fescue alone, it's going to take it a long time to finish um, and get to market weight. And it's, it's going to just have kind of a grassy, gamey flavor that's not particularly great. But when you start to bring in diversity – and you add this forage chain concept, which is includes grazing some annuals during the summer forage slump. Grass doesn't grow super great here in July and August because it's very hot. So that's a good time to graze annuals. And in the dead of winter, it's hard to graze perennial pasture because they go dormant. But we can also graze a lot of winter annuals like rye, wheat, triticale, um, Austrian winter pea, brassicas. So these really kind of other forages throughout the winter. So when you when you finish an animal on those throughout the whole year, not only do they get to market weight faster because they have all the nutrients they need, but they also kind of have that diversity of, of flavor going into the meat. And for me, I, I absolutely love it. And a lot of folks that I know that you know grew up eating grain finished beef have really changed over and found an appreciation for grass fed you know, especially like I can think of my father-in-law, you know, at first when I, he, I, when I first married his daughter, he was like, wasn't so sure about this grass fed stuff. And now it's the opposite. And, um, so it's, it's interesting to see how people's palates adapt over time as well. Yeah. That's awesome. The, the only thing I'll add to that is that, you know, with grass finishing, you know, the genetic portion of the livestock is important too. And, you know, for many years, the, the beef industry has been pretty focused on bigger animals and what we're trying to do with our grass-fed genetics is use more moderate style genetics that aren't gonna you know we don't have the the groceries that a feedlot has to get bigger animals really big and so if we use smaller frame genetics then they can flesh um, more effectively create some more fat and and actually create a high, much higher quality product on grass and we've been doing that for 20 years and then on the pork side you know, what we've found is that heritage breed genetics are are more adaptable to outdoor, you know, pasture-based systems. And so, you know, the, the meat on those is a little more flavorful, has a little more intramuscular fat. And at the end of the day, we can raise these things outside and it's a little slower to, to get them to market weight. But, you know, the marbling and the, and the, the meat just is remarkably different than a a more commodity style product. That's a really good point, Jamie. You guys have a, a lot of different meat products that um, you know folks can buy locally or have shipped, uh, but you also have a number of like value added and shelf stable meat products. Can you talk a little bit about your um, the, the sort of range of products that you offer and how you got into the shelf stable items and how you chose which items to offer? Um, yeah, sure. So, so one of the biggest challenges of the meat business, operationally speaking, is utilization of the entire carcass. Because you know, there's only so many steaks on an animal, 
And uh, and if we could all you know make more ribeyes, then that would be uh, a much or tenderloins even better. You would have a much better outcome from a from a marketing uh, standpoint. But that just doesn't happen with beef or pork. And so we end up with a lot of um, trim and those type items. And you know as we we're idealistic about agriculture and selling local food off of our farms. You know, clearly as you harvest more and more animals, you've got to use the whole, whole, whole animal and items that we realize that consumers definitely like number one are sausage um, and ground beef for the two items that we have. And both of those um, do sell really well, but you still need to be more utilized. And so, Items like salamis, we decided to roll those out. That use, utilizes the hams really well. Um, then we did some beef sticks and, and selling those. Um, consumers obviously like to eat those. And Asher and I are both parents who, you know, have kids and life's busy. And it's always nice to have a meat stick around to, to know where it is. I've got about, I've got three sons and I've got about, you know, 10 cousins that hang around our house all the time. And, they all know where the beef stick stash is in the bottom drawer of the kitchen. And that seems to be the main go-to because all I find around the house are meat stick wrappers. <laughs> um, but we also have, you know, we're trying to be more and more consumer friendly and, and operate in a manner that's consistent with how consumers buy. So, you know, having a one pound brick pack on shelf for cons- customers, we have that product available at Ingalls supermarkets. Um, we sell to Whole Foods. And Whole Foods has been great about marketing the whole animal, but they do have a challenge getting uh, with too much grinds. And so we've partnered with folks like Farm Burger, which is a burger chain here in the southeast that does 100 percent grass fed beef. And and they, you know, can use a lot of ground beef. So as we grow our, our brand and our company, you know, a big focus is utilization and making sure that we have the right customer mix to be able to make sure that we're fully utilized across the board. And, you know, I think we have something like 150 SKUs uh, throughout our company because of that challenge, you know, and then we have an opportunity. Another exciting thing we did was roll out a sausage product with a wicked weed brewing here in Asheville and and rolled out some flavors with those folks, Um, you know, being creative and paying attention to kind of what the industry is looking for and how we can, be a good partners to both, re, you know, to retailers, but also to chefs in the food service industry is, is always exciting too. And, you know, what we've learned so much about the quality of our meats, about, you know, the quality of our butchering and the way that product comes into the chefs um, from these food service chef partnerships who are so valuable in, in giving good, honest feedback, know the product so well, and, and, you know, we just really feel lucky to have so many people out there who are rooting for Hickory Nut Gap as we look to sort of be ambitious and change the food system, that that feedback loop has been so helpful as we develop new products and um, learn how to do things better on the farm to make the, the product better for customers all around. To close this out, you guys, can you tell us your favorite dish or a favorite dish you've had recently with Hickory Nut Gap meat? I can start. Um, I have three boys who are 12 years old, 15 years old, and 17 years old. And the, I mean, maybe it's boring, but it's just part of my reality. 
is breakfast sausage. Uh, <laughs> breakfast sausage in the morning has become a, a almost mandatory thing for all these boys. And so uh, for me, just cooking, cooking some eggs and breakfast sausage and making some uh, runny eggs on toast with some breakfast sausage is, is really hard to beat. Sounds good to me. That is the opposite of boring, Jamie. <laughs> it just made me so hungry. That's awesome. I'm going to take us into red meat land. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of a good charred ribeye on some mashed potatoes with uh, with a nice steak sauce. You know, I like a cast iron skillet ribeye. Then you can you know use the use the the burnt bits in the pan and scrape it up after deglazing it and all that good stuff. And so have that with some asparagus and a and a steak. And you know if it's a Friday night, maybe put some compounded butter on top and let's just go let's get after it so that's kind of that's not an all the time thing but it's a nice treat on a date night or or you know my wife and i'll get the kids to bed early and we'll like let's have a dinner and an adult conversation you know instead of the little kids running around because we've got got like a three-year-old and a five-year-old so hard to get a word in at the table so that's kind of that's kind of my favorite meal that i've had recently very nice and Tell everyone where they can shop and learn more about Hickory Nut Gap. Um, you can go to the website, hickorynutgap.com. Um, we have great customers up and down the East Coast, uh, retailers like Fresh Direct up in New York. Um, we work with Whole Foods down here in the Southeast. We work with Ingalls. We work with Whole Foods, um, uh, Earth Fair. We work with a ton of local restaurants all over Asheville. And it's hard to mention them all. Um, then we work with a bunch of chefs in Charlotte, um, Atlanta, Raleigh, Durham, and uh, increasingly into the Northeast. And so um, the website, you can also order product online there. What am I missing, Asher? Yeah, we do the direct to consumer so we can we can ship anywhere in the U.S. There's a website anywhere in the U.S. that can handle a two day or less delivery. So we have a map on our website that can guide you through that process. I think Farm Burger is a, a good chain here in the southeast in a number of cities. Uh, also, Tupelo Honey, that's another yeah. place that, uh, you know, kind of has a regional presence. I mean, I think they have one in Colorado now, if I remember correctly. So um, those are just a couple additions. And then you can also, if you're ever in Asheville, come by the farm store. We're yes. about 20 minutes south of the city. And um, you can get a lot of things there that we we don't sell elsewhere so our, our in-house butcher staff makes some really good custom sausages that are unique flavors that are fun and get get items cut cut to your own specifications and things like that so there's some there's some fun items that we have in the butcher shop that you can't get elsewhere so it's worth coming to visit the farm if you're ever in the Asheville area and when you come to the farm you can see the farm store and the butchers and all the creative stuff we can do in-house but then we also have baby chicks to look at. We have some pigs up there on the hill. So uh, very much a home of the brand here and and uh, a good place to, for families to come. And, you know, I always joke, you can look and see and touch agriculture. And that's really who we are as a brand and what we want to represent to the world is, is an authentic uh, farming brand that, that makes great food and you know, we want people to be able to come and touch and feel it when they're uh, when they're in Western North Carolina. So yeah. I'm on my way. 
Come on. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Really hope we get to visit you guys in person soon. Um, In the meantime, thank you both Asher and Jamie so much for joining us on HRN on tour. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Special thanks to Hickory Nut Gap for making our coverage possible today and during the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. You can listen to all our interviews from the festival on Heritage Radio Network on tour, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.